everyone, and welcome to Directorial Debuts, sponsored by Plot Devices, I guess, if we're a sponsor now. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning into this. This is a little experiment we're going to be trying. I'm going to toss it over to my co-host in a moment. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today. This is affiliation with our main podcast, Plot Devices, which you can check out basically anywhere on this channel if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I want to turn it over to my co-host, Mr. Noah Guzman. How are you doing today, and what are we doing here? Hello, Brandon. Yes. And hello, listeners. This is Directorial Debut, the isolated episode. Um, This is a nice little popcorn kernel for you to chew on because I'm going to be honest, okay? I'm the type of podcast listener where where maybe I'm not always ready for the two-hour show to hop on and hop off. So, I mean, there's one problem. Brandon, I love talking about movies. You love talking about movies. We love talking about movies for hours on end. But sometimes listeners just need that quick little insight into maybe a picture that they haven't discovered yet or a director that they haven't thought um, they haven't thought to seek out on their own. So that's kind of the effort behind directorial debuts is introducing the first projects of these astounding, amazing directors who went on to create, who knows, maybe best pictures or, or you name it. But we're looking at their very first um, feature and deciding how we feel about it and, and what it says about them as a director and the, the career that lies ahead of them. Today, we are talking Paul Bearer, and that is directed by Matt Reeves. Brandon, is here to share more about the story and some details surrounding the project. For uh, any of you guys who might have been disappointed that we didn't, uh, the week of the Batman, talk about any of Matt Reeves' movies, uh, you're getting it now. Uh, we were saving it. We were totally the smart week, week, nudge, nudge. Uh, the Pallbearer. This is from 1996. This is Matt Reeves' directorial debut. Of course, as you know, Matt Reeves is in a lot of headlines right now for directing this little gothic indie movie, The Batman. Uh, maybe you heard of it. It's also uh, been very accomplished otherwise. Obviously, uh, Cloverfield was his big breakthrough. He joined the Planet of the Apes franchise in 2014 with uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and then continued with War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, he's done a bunch of other kind of scattered things here and there. Initially kind of had a very weird career path. He's had this long affiliation with J.J. Uh, Abrams who we will talk about in this, weirdly enough. Um, he kind of got to start with a couple of shorts going through uh, Sunday and things like that. And this was his first full-length feature. He'd had some horror background. I should mention that as well, because that's kind of important for him. Uh, but this is his first feature, not in the horror vein, but we'll talk about it. It stars David Schwimmer. Mind you, this is 1996. So this is fresh in Friends mania David Schwimmer. So this was him trying to branch out into different projects. Uh, we have David Schwimmer in here as Tom Thompson, the most original name of all time. Uh, he's a guy in his mid-20s. He's working, or at least trying to work for some like software slash business type firms. He's not having much luck. He's having to stay with his mother, played by uh, Carol Kane. And then he gets a phone call from what he believes to be an old classmate's friend, a guy named Bill Abernathy, who he has never heard of, who has just passed away suddenly. Uh, the mother played by Barbara Hershey, who's seen in a million different things. And she asks him to be a pallbearer at the ceremony and eventually to give the eulogy. This, of course, freaks him out because he doesn't remember a thing about Bill. So he has to enlist the help of his friends, uh, played by Michael Rapoport and Michael Barton. Uh, I believe Scott and Brad, I believe their names are respectively, to kind of help him maneuver this charade that he's filed himself into. But then this turns into a rom-com because he meets uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Julie, who is an old classmate crush that he has. And the whole movie is essentially going throughout the idea of he's trying to court Julie, he's trying to figure out this mess, he gets closer with um, with Bill's mother, again played by Barbara Hershey, they start to form this weird relationship that we'll get into, and the whole movie is just kind of like, how does the past sneak up on you, how can it influence your future, and you know, that kind of thing, all tied in a nice rom-com 90s bow. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you first, we obviously have plenty of experience with the Batman, but like, 
What was your experience with Reeves' filmography as a whole prior to this, Batman notwithstanding? Thank you, Brandon. My experience with Matt Reeves up to this point has involved uh, the eight movies, of course, which I actually am a big fan of. I, I would say looking back at them, the eight movies were kind of, there were there were a cultural moment where myself um, and my friends or be it my family, like we were all interested in the same uh big release and that was the new uh dawn of the planet of the apes rise of the planet of the apes i remember actually laughing though at, at how extensive those titles were um and then cloverfield like learning that these these different projects of different genres all have the same director really kind of blew my mind in terms of what matt reeves takes on and what he can what he can handle effectively because cloverfield in my opinion is one of the best like sh- shaky cam like handheld um, found footage type movies that there are uh, not to mention like such a such an exciting um, creature that they created in that movie that would go on to kind of almost find its own uh, universe with like 10 Cloverfield Lane and then the Cloverfield Paradox I don't know if anybody watched the the last one on Netflix but uh, that's unassociated with Matt Reeves um, approaching this movie I think I had that same feeling around Matt Reeves where this is going to be another project where I didn't expect to see his name on it, um, assuming that he would be associated with like one type of filmmaking. Um, but that doesn't happen here. We have uh, something that feels like a romantic comedy, um, but is centered around, I mean, the title's Paul Bear, so it's centered around a funeral. And it, it at first, I think that the comedy, like the shtick is all going to be about David Schwimmer being like the, oh, I'm just trying to be the guy who you need me to be because my name was invited to this person's um, funeral service. And I just can't for the life of me remember who he was in high school. So early 2000s movies, I feel like it's all about like the lost love from high school. So I wasn't surprised when at the funeral, the group of friends that decide to go um, with Tom Thompson uh, involved Gwyneth Paltrow. And he is like kind of one of those uh, love interests that he had in high school who is coming back into his life. And he's wondering like, how can our, how can I rekindle this relationship? And then he gets involved with the deceased mother. And that's where my red flags continue. So uh, just story-wise, this movie confused me. Like I'm watching it and I'm really looking for that indicator of, what the hell am I watching? I hope you felt that way too, Brandon, at least early on. Like, did that settle in for you too? I remember finishing this movie and it came to me. of just like, this is a weird mix of like the graduate plus like really early Felicity meets like any episode of Friends. That is what this movie is. And it's not surprising that you mentioned this is a time where he was so Friends heavy because when you have an actor who is so like, immediately associated with one franchise it's not surprising when they try and break themselves off and do like a kind of like a weird project so seeing david schwimmer in this i was like oh this is like his take on the rom-com genre and i don't know if he's doing it right i don't know if he's really doing it yeah and like the thing about schwimmer and i bring up the friends comparison like for for two obvious reasons one because it's schwimmer like at the height of his fame and granted i don't think it's entirely his fault i don't want to go so far as to say he's miscast but i think he's miscast simply because I think at that time, I think he was so enraptured with, and this is not meant to be on him or anything. This is just kind of how his career was at that point. I think he was so enraptured in the point of, I have this role of a lifetime as Ross Geller and friends. I need to be focused on that. And any other role is going to have, you know, interpolations or ideas from that thrown into it. And I, again, maybe just because of the writing and we'll get into it, 
but I don't think it quite works here. At the same time, the first half of the movie, I don't know if you felt this way, it feels like a friend sketch. Like, it feels like, for not, the, not just the Schwimmer is leaning into, like, the Ross Gellerism of it all, but, like, it feels like a thing of, oh, Ross would totally get a phone call from a guy from, from a mom from high school who didn't know him and that maybe he starts an affair with and that he has to deal with shenanigans about it. He gives this really vague, unambiguous speech. That feels like friends. My next note about this movie is just understanding, like, I was excited when I saw the cover because I'm like, oh, the Paul Bear, and it's going to be a, a relationship story between Gwyneth Paltrow and um, David Schwimmer. And there really is only, I would say, two scenes that are kind of towards the middle, almost the end of the movie, where they have, like, a real moment to explore, like, what their relationship means to each other. Because this movie has a lot of distracting scenes, be it a side relationship that he doesn't fully acknowledge with um, the names are slipping me. I'm sorry. Um, Tony Collette was in this movie. I'm, oh yeah. She, um, uh, she's the wife of us. Uh, okay. Oh God. Michael Barton's character. <laughs> Wait, what? I yeah. feel like I'm so surprised I didn't recognize her. Okay. Back to business. Ruth Abernathy is her name. Okay. Um, his hilarious relationship with his mother. Uh, this is a 25 year old. He's like a man child. He has a bunk bed in his room. It's definitely leaning into all of the, you know, high school is the defining moment of your early, of your early adult life. And then you carry that with you up, up through adulthood, um, which I disagree with so hardcore, but of course of the time in this movie, they're like, you know, high school was where all these relationships mattered and we're going to hold on to those relationships until we die. Um, Oh my gosh, like, like make new friends, like make, <laughs> make new relationships, go on new journeys. Like that's how I felt watching the movie. But I understand like this is a very specific type of that early 2000s take. Um, but like I said, it wasn't focusing enough on that rom-com aspect for me to really know what it was doing. And I think that that's to its detriment. So um I wasn't surprised when watching this with my partner, though. She's looking at it and she's like, this is from the same guy that directed Batman. That looks like Gotham. Like, that looks like this. That looks like that street. <laughs> and a couple different moments, um, we were looking at the movie and I was like, this is unrelated to Matt Reeves, kind of. But I was like, oh, I bet you that's Spider-Man's house. Like, I bet you that's the same set that they used for uh, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Because, it, like, this is pulled from the same time period. Or I'm sorry, this is produced from the same time period. So... Uh, in in that age of Hollywood, I feel like you can kind of look at things and recognize where you've seen them before. Oh, totally. Like, if that's not a back lot, it's just some street in New York that, like, has a good tax break area. Uh, we should mention Robert Ellswit shot this, who has shot so many amazing movies. He, he won an Academy Award for There Might Be Blood. Um, he's working with Paul Thomas Anderson at Dunn. He, he's actually the godfather of Jake Gyllenhaal, of all people, which I found fascinating. But beyond that, like, he, you're right. He gets these weird shot compositions where you're not quite sure if it's leaning into kind of the wacky oddball comedy aspect of it or very uh, flirting the idea of like an erotic thriller almost with the Barbara Hershey stuff like you're not quite sure where visually even tonally it's going and like that goes back to that idea of you know of Tom's character as a whole who I think is trying desperately to feel relatable like even in the first couple of scenes there's that whole uh, back and forth of the bowling alley which also feels very big Lebowski for comparing to other movies um, but there's that idea of Tom is just a He's this good, misunderstood guy who's trying to get along with the world. And yet, like Ross Geller, I found these weird, toxic undertones to him of like, you think you're the nice guy, but you are very clearly making some very big mistakes, uh, not just with Barbara Hershey, but also like with his friend group, with Gwyneth Paltrow's character, with like, um, oh, Michael Rappaport's fiance, uh, who I'm forgetting the character's name, who 
seems to just be like eccentric and he like he flat out hates her. That's uh Lauren, right? Played Lauren, by Biddy Shrum. Thank you. Right now, what you're saying, like his his <laughs> toxic undertones. I was writing like, then this story turns into, you know, it has a take on loss and manipulation because <laughs> like like manipulation heavy because I'm I'm just so intrigued. Like I was thinking to myself, why are they including a shot of so the the person who dies, um, they died. Um, it's a death by suicide, and it's like carbon. Uh, monoxide poisoning um and that's tragic right like that's the opening of like different movies i'm thinking about midsummer but comedy coming back to this this is like yeah is this a comedy and then there's a scene where tom is being dramatic and he's in the garage in the car of the person who died and he's pretty much just like sitting there with the car on because he's throwing a fit and he's being like the my world is crumbling because my my actions have consequences like it was that's how i felt watching this movie he plays a protagonist that i can't really get behind because he's a man child and he's making immature decisions with the people around him and expecting them to not impact him as drastically as they are um i don't know if it was there for me brandon He, he does but i think at the end of the day the reason i can't quite hate this is for two reasons one i think schwimmer as we know, like, I think he's a really talented actor. Like, um, oh God, um, People versus OJ, uh, Band of Brothers. Like, he has shown himself to be, re- and he's like an accomplished stage performer who I still haven't seen in anything live. But like, he is an accomplished actor. He can get into that kind of performance. I just feel like this was at a time where he wasn't trying to do that. Or if he was, he was being held back by this, again, weird script that Reeves is desperately trying to frame this really certain idea of, you know, friendship in the 90s of, you know, getting into shenanigans and kind of having to reconcile with the consequences of that. And at the same time, I know that might be simplistic to say, but like, I think that's all there is with this. There's not a ton of huge subtext. The only time I think it gets into it is the last 10 minutes, where for one thing, yes, we see, you know, spoiler, we see Schwimmer's character reconcile with his actions. He gives Julie the car, which I thought was a really cool gesture and like really uh, overwhelmingly kind, so to speak. Um, And then we get the actual reveal with the other Tom, which I think should be way more powerful than it is. Um, there's the moment where you like see you see him in the uh, doorway of Barbara Hershey's house. And I was like, oh, that's where they're going with this. That's cool. And then we just get like a quick conversation on the outside, which I get what he's going for. I get that's the idea of like, oh, even the people who knew this Bill Abernathy guy, maybe they didn't quite know him as well. Like maybe just people, you know, sometimes just die for no reason. And that's tragic. And we kind of just have to move on with that. Like maybe that's the case. But when you've built up so much, and they even have like that moment in the bedroom where they come to the realization of that. And I thought, this is where the movie's going to go. And it doesn't. And I wish it did more with that. Well, hey, this movie will be for you if you're looking for a study of that, uh, that 90s, <laughs> those 90s friendships that kind of stand the test of time, um, along with like these relics from the 90s that stand the test of time. Like I had to Google what these things called clackers were because as they're exploring the bedroom scene, um, Tom has like these just random toys around his room. Um, again, man child. And um, Julie DeMarco, Gwyneth Paltrow comes in and <laughs> they're trying to be quiet because uh, Tom's mother is sleeping. But immediately she finds this is like these two acrylic balls that hang on string and she starts clacking them and then goes crazy and like causes such a loud disruption and i was like oh what happened to those like i don't see them anymore my partner on the couch goes didn't they like 
like kill people. Like, isn't that why they're, they're not allowed anymore. And I was like, what? So then I perused the internet and I was like, what happened? And turns out, yeah, they're actually banned in the, they're banned. They're a band. I don't know if they're banned just in the U S but they're like not manufactured anymore because people would clack them so loud. They'd or hard, they'd explode and the shrapnel would go flying everywhere. So you want to have a little perspective into the nineties and what the world looked like. Here's a movie for you. PSA kids, don't use clackers. Uh, although you apparently did not watch Drake and Josh where they literally fought each other with clackers. Yes, yes. And that's why I was like, what happened to these? Because they were around. And then like the mandala effect, the world was like, forget about this. This never happened. It's like moon shoes. Like they clearly existed, but we're not going to remember it. Um, I do want to quickly mention both Barbara Hershey and Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm critiquing Schwimmer's performance a lot in this. I like them both in this. Like, Paltrow is clearly leading into like that. I think this was pre Shakespeare in Love. I think Shakespeare in Love was ninety nine. Um, but she's clearly leading into that kind of early era of her career where they were trying to kind of frame her as a teen heartthrob, but you know, kind of complicated. Then it makes a dream girl, and I think she's making it work. Like I like her dialogue. I like that moment when they're um, when they're on like the patio behind Tom's house and they're just talking about her wanting to drive away. And there was like a lot of sincerity in that. There's like this dodgy evasiveness in like a lot of her looks of just like. I really don't want to be here, but I will gladly, you know, interface with you as a human. And I kind of found that really profound in a weird way in a movie that I don't think should be. Uh, and the Barbara Hershey stuff, she's clearly playing up kind of, you know, the stereotypical mess of a mother in grief who, you know, goes to the younger man. Side note, Barbara Hershey and David Schwimmer look very similar in age. Like, I know she's supposed to be like 15 years older, but I did not buy it for a second. But like, I like her leaning into that. I think she does a good job, especially like in the moment where she comes to uh, Tom's house and tries to like uh, confront her mom. Like there's actually a fear there that I kind of felt. Absolutely. I think between performances, Barbara, Barbara Hershey as Ruth Abernathy, I had the most uh, joyful time watching because I didn't know what she was going to do on screen. She's playing a character who can kind of lean into whatever extreme she wants because she's a grieving mother um, while also juggling like this, this young boy who's, who just, who's decided to romance her. Um, and she's decided to look at him in the same way that she would look at a lover, but really uh, he was just fun. Like, and they, and you know, it's not really a spoiler, but they both do acknowledge that in the end. Do I know, do I think it's that, telling or that like grand like you know um but you know this movie isn't trying to accomplish that or if it is it's not trying to do that as hard as trying to make you laugh and try to make you remain lighthearted. i think where would you and you don't have to make this like anything concrete but like where would you put this ranking in terms of matt reeves's filmography i think for both it's both pretty low you know brandon <laughs> It is an outlier. And just for the sake of hilarity, please allow me to read you the headline of this movie or the tagline of this movie. So here it goes. I quote, a comedy about lifelong crushes, mistaken identity, and one really bad eulogy. I think just reading that this movie was a recipe for disaster. Um, This is an outlier. And I think it stands uh, at the base of Matt Reeves's like potential and i think that there's something to know in this being his premiere project uh at least for myself the perspective i'm applying to it is hey he's a new director he wants to approach hollywood oh check this out he can direct a david schwimmer flick with gwyneth paltrow sign me up and that's why it feels weird in comparison to the catalog of like great work he's produced um but no this is in my opinion this is kind of beneath all that and i can't wait to explore later projects from him um now that we've explored his debut Brandon. Totally. Hell, I hope when that eventual fourth print of the year, 
we can actually like review those because I want to talk about those. But like there is this weird like darkness and grounded nature to a lot of Reeves's later work. I mean, whether you're talking about Cloverfield, whether you're talking about the Apes movies, uh, even Felicity, which he would do like right after this, which I admit I haven't seen all of. I've only seen like the first uh, season or two. But there's even like a groundedness to that that isn't quite here. I think it's exactly what you're getting at. I think it was the idea of, you know, I'm Matt Reeves. I'm coming off of Under Siege 2, which was at that point his biggest credit. And, you know, just, oh, I get to make a movie with like two of the biggest up and coming movie stars of their day. That's like a big rom-com. Like people will like it, but, you know, get me on the map. And then I get to work with, you know, my friend J.J. Abrams, who's going to produce it. Yeah, why wouldn't I do this? And I think while I would certainly put it as the lowest ranked of his projects, I actually don't think this is that bad. Can you go ahead and lead us into the ratings? I would be more than happy to. Um, for me, this is a really reluctant five and a half out of ten. Uh, I think this is fine. I like the rom-com elements to it. I like the kind of, again, leaning into erotic thriller elements of it. And I like the camaraderie about it. Like, it, it is. Again, I go back to this comparison. It is The Graduate meets The Big Lebowski meets any episode of Friends. And, like, if you look at it like that and, like, of its time and are willing to, like, engage with it on that level i think there's interesting things there uh certainly from schwimmer's career from paltrow's career and especially of matt reeves's directing career just in terms of pacing and tone and like set of sense of place i should say it is a weird time capsule it is not one that i can't say i didn't like but it's again it's the weakest of his filmography it is certainly of its time take it or leave it if you're morbidly curious i would recommend it but there's other better stuff in his filmography uh noah over to you you know what? Noah's brass knuckles for film ratings are coming oh, out darn. this year, okay? Brandon, I am not holding back. This is a boom. It's a four out of ten for me. Oh, no. <laughs> and it feels so... I know. Oh, my gosh. Matt Reeves is looking at me down from his Gotham high city cloud, his pantheon of Gotham. And he's looking me. down at me. He's saying, are you, are you telling me, Hermes of the pantheon in Gotham, are you telling me Noah Guzman of Plot Devices podcast gave my debut project a four out of 10? Are you telling me this? It's true. It's true. Hermes of Gotham. Um, we're looking at a nineties throwback love from high school. It's never forgettable. It's sometimes wacky. It is always sloppy. Um, I think there are other movies in the same lane um, of this time that just accomplish the task better. And that's making you feel, you know, lighthearted and joy from these rekindled relationships. Uh, this one was kind of off the walls and uh, for me, couldn't find focus. Uh, but if you're looking for baby Schwimmer, baby Paltrow, as well as baby Michael Rappaport because he is yes. hilarious on Twitter on social media like he's not afraid to speak his mind and uh I'm always like tuned into what he has to say uh, or at least whenever it pops up on my feeds I'm not skipping it like he's a familiar face to me now but I wonder what his earlier projects were as well and this was one where I was surprised to see him oh also if, if we're getting into that one he's also from friends so it all ties back together and two he's a he's a person who I never find boring but just sometimes don't agree with which is kind of what this movie is um anyways Thank you all so much for listening to this pilot of directorial debuts. Again, we've done 15 of these. So if you want to go back and check out them, you know, them in podcast form, you can go check that out on our channel on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices, as well as our RSS feed at that same name. If you also want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, it's Plot Devices Pod. We'll have updates to when new episodes and like weird social content coming out here and there. We hope to, I should preface this, this might not be the thing, but we're going to try and make this so. Uh, when we initially planned this series, it was going to be like a 10 episode season kind of thing. So what we're doing is because we've already done five of these, we're going to try and get five of these out in the next couple of weeks in a, in contrast to all of our plot devices episodes. So you'll get a plot devices episode, you'll get one of these and then so on and so forth. 
until we finish this five season run. And then we'll be taking a break for about a month, which will likely be in June. So if you want to stick with us for us, uh, let us know. And we'll probably be, again, as we always do, let us know on Twitter and Instagram what you want to see us cover, because there are plenty of directorial debuts out there, and we are still deciding. I want to toss it over to my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, uh, where can people find you online, and what do you got going on in your life? You can find me online on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Uh, I'm excited to continue uh, with these short directorial debuts, and uh, I'm actually looking forward to the next one. You know, uh, You want to mention what we're covering next? Yes, our next film, which we actually know, we're going to be recording it right after this, but you'll hear it in like a week and a half or so. Uh, Pariah from 2011, directed by Dee Reese, who did a Mudbound and The Last Thing You Wanted. We're very excited to talk about this, and you guys should stay tuned for that because it's going to be a conversation. And you guys can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. You can follow my work on ASU Odyssey as well. And of course, you can follow my band, Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. We have lots of stuff coming out. Uh, check us out for upcoming gigs and eventually music for that as well. So for this episode of Directorial Debuts and Affiliation with Plot Devices, my name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman, and we hope to see you guys next time.